Growing up, my parents, when we were in the car, they used to play this game, and it was a genius game. This game, some of you may have played it before, it's called the silent game. <laughs> and the way that it works is that whoever, whichever child is quiet, the longest in the car, they win. And so my parents played this, and it was, it was so smart. And probably years went on where my sister and I would play this game. We would play the silent game together until one day I finally figured something out. There's no prize. This isn't really a game. It was my parents' genius hack to be able to drive in peace and quiet. Maybe they could even have a conversation without being interrupted or, or us saying, are we there yet? I'm hungry. I need to go to the bathroom. It was a genius move. And here's what I want you to know is that the things that you and I believe, they impact our behavior. The things that we believe, they impact our behavior. Behavior. Now, I'm going to talk about stories today. And when I talk about stories, what I really mean is the thing about life, and specifically the memories we have of, of the experiences we have. I don't know if you know this or not, but we don't have perfect memory, and it's kind of freaky sometimes that we, our memories can distort the truth of what happened. I remember talking with my family a couple years ago, and I, I said, hey, dad worked at a restaurant, and he wasn't home at dinner time, right? And my mom said, no, he was home at dinner. But my memory, there's something about it that was wrong. And we can believe things according to those memories that are wrong. We can tell ourselves stories. And so it's so important that we find the truth in the stories that we tell. There's a proverb that sums this up as succinctly and as quickly as only Proverbs can do. Proverbs 23 says, As he thinks, or as a man thinks within himself, so is he. As a man thinks, so is he. Whatever you think about the world and the way that your life interacts with the world and the way that God interacts with you, it be, that's how you receive it, and that's what you become. There's a pastor, his name is Craig Rochelle. He puts it this way. He says, your life is always moving. And always moving. And so the stories that we tell, the things we believe, are massively now, we people. I grew up hearing stories around the dinner table. My parents would often have marries, or they would invite people that were homeless, or they would invite friends over because we didn't have family nearby. And I remember hearing their stories, and it impacted me. It impacted me so much. And I would hear my parents, by the way, telling stories about their relationship and how they got together. And it impacted me so much that when I finally took Abby out for coffee, I thought it was normal on the first date to say, if I had to marry anybody I knew, I would pick you. <laughs> I thought that was a completely normal thing to do because that's the story that I heard from my parents. The stories we hear, they impact us, right? So I was impacted around the dinner table. I was impacted by Sesame Street. Maybe you were impacted by Little Einsteins or Romper Room, whatever that is, right? <laughs> Maybe you were impacted by stories that happened at grandma's house or at the hunting lodge. We have been shaped by stories. Now, not only that, we are also, oh, we're story people. Uh, the Bible Project puts it this way. Stories are the most universal form of human communication. We are hardwired to take in information through stories. They train us to make sense of the seemingly random events of life and help us see the purpose of it all. Now, why is the Bible Project talking about stories? Because 
the Bible, this book, 43% story. It's made up of all the stories of the heroes of faith. And you can see the other parts up there too. 33% is poetry and 24% is discourse or teaching. But the majority, the biggest category in the Bible is stories. Why does Jesus teach so much in parables? Because we're story people and we remember stories. Why is it that you can leave a sermon or a lesson or a teaching and you might forget all of the points, but the one thing you'll remember is the, is the story. It's because we are story people and we are people of the story. Now here's the thing. Here's the good news, is that the story has been going on long before us, and it will go on long beyond us. Think of the stories of, of our culture. Here's the pattern that usually happens, is that life is good for the main character, right? Then some sort of a chaos happens and some sort of a fall happens. An enemy is usually involved to bring about that chaos. The main character usually meets someone who's often called a guide, and they give them instructions on how to overcome their evil ways. Many times there's a helpful, good character who is willing to lay down their life to see order returned. This is why Darth Vader throws Emperor Palpatine into the reactor. This is why Aslan lays his life down on the stone altar. The father figure lays down his life to save the world from the evil powers. Why are these stories so familiar to us? It's because this is the story of the gospel. This is the story of the gospel. One of the ways that we heard about it put this weekend is these four things, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That in the beginning, God created the world and it was good, and it was very good. And then humanity decided to take things into our own, our own way. Adam and Eve, they decided, I don't wanna do God's way, I'm gonna try it my way. And then the fall happened and we experienced brokenness. We no longer had peace with God and with the world. And then Jesus sent his son, or God sent his son Jesus to die in our place so that we could be redeemed and we could be made right with God. And it doesn't even end there. God has a plan of restoration, of restoring all things back to his creation and his vision. If you read the end of the book, that's what it says. And so this story is so familiar to us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that he's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. God has set eternity in the heart. There's this book I have somewhere in my office called Eternity in Their Hearts. And it's, it's a history of all these civilizations from around the globe, all these indigenous people groups who had a story about a loving God who created them and their fall from grace with that God. And now, now there's a, a strife between them and God. And their cultures had a story about the only way that things could be made right was when the God himself came down and laid down his life so that they could be made one with God. That's the story of the gospel, and it's written in the hearts of people all over the world. I want to encourage you, you can check out the book. If you don't believe me, you can read stories from Vietnam and South America and the, the Incans and the Mayans. They all had this story. And so when missionaries went, all they had to do was say, hey, that story you believe, that man, his name is Jesus. And he's already come and he's already died for you. And you can experience that freedom now if you believe in Jesus. It's pretty incredible. Every culture has this story. Now, I believe that whoever tells the best story wins. I believe that whoever tells the best story wins. I believe that the future belongs to the storytellers. 
The future belongs to the storytellers. The people who create culture will be the most convincing storytellers. And if you lament, like I do, the place of prominence that Christians once enjoyed in society and culture, I think it's because we've stopped telling stories about God's goodness, and instead we've embraced ideological battles. We need to tell more good stories about God. Let me just give you one quick example about the power of story. There's a man, his name is Edward Bernays. He was Sigmund Freud, the famous uh, psychologist nephew, and he lived in the, the early 1900s. Um, he was named by Time magazine one of, the, one of the 100 most influential Americans of the 20th century. Now, you probably don't know his name, but I guarantee you that you've been affected by what he believes and the stories that he told. After World War I, he worked for the Committee on Public Information where he described his work as psychological warfare. In 1924, he helped Calvin Coolidge get elected by hosting pancake breakfasts, so people thought he wasn't so stuffy, that he was a more relatable guy. He staged these things to change people's perception. And then in 1927, this is the biggest story that, uh, that he did that, is, that impacts us today, he started on the payroll of the American Tobacco Company, the American Tobacco Company, and they, want, they wanted him to do one thing. They wanted him to help more women smoke cigarettes. At the time, it was illegal for women to smoke cigarettes in public. It was taboo, and so they enlisted him. They said, will you help us sell more tobacco? And so he started this whole agenda, and he enlisted photographers, and he even got doctors involved and celebrities, and this is what he said. He changed the ideal woman. He changed the idea of the ideal woman from a normal, full-figured woman to a very thin woman, to almost a sickly thin woman. And they created this campaign where, because smoking, um, it curbs eating, so the, they created this campaign about uh, don't have sweets, smoke instead. And so they got doctors to sign on to this, that smoking is better for you than eating sweets. And they encouraged women to have cigarettes available in their house so that people could enjoy smoking with them. And he changed this one man changed our ideal of what the feminine body is. The future belongs to the storytellers. The future belongs to the storytellers. So a big question that I'm going to ask about is, what story are we telling? What is the story that we're telling? And pretty clearly today, God's at work re-enlivening the story of His redemption in us. Amen? All right, so open up your Bible to Psalm 107. Um, our theme verse for the retreat is Psalm 107, verse 2. It's on our shirts, and it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hands of the foe. And Sunday morning at the retreat, I was looking over some things that I was going to share uh, and some, some time that the students were going to get sent out to spend time alone with the Lord, some recapping things we were going to do, and I looked through Psalm 107, and I thought, holy smokes, there are four different stories in here. There are four stories of different people groups who've been redeemed by God. And I felt like, I don't have time to delve into this during the retreat. And this whole theme of telling the story and understanding the story felt bigger than just for our students. And so it was on my heart to share this with you this morning. So we're going to be in Psalm 107. Now, if you'll quickly allow me to Bible nerd out, uh, Psalm 107, you might see that it says at the beginning, it's book five. And so there are five books in the Psalms. This is the fifth and final one. And book five is kind of a call to the fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is written by Moses. It's overlooking, and it's, it's overlooking the promised land, and it's thanking God for the movement of his people into the place that God has for them. 
thanking God for the movement of his people and the place God has for them. And this whole book, all, all from Psalm 107 to 150, it's written in that same place. God, thank you for moving your people into where you have for them to be. Other people see this as a trilogy. How many of you love trilogies? Okay, all right. Psalm 105 is about the promise of land. Psalm 106 is about the punishment of being scattered throughout the lands. And then Psalm 107 is about being rescued back from the lands. And so that's the backdrop for Psalm 107. Now, I'm going to read it, and I'm just going to make a couple comments as we go. So in verse 1, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands from east and west, from north and south. Let the people of God tell their story, how he has redeemed us. Now, this is both personal, just like we heard this morning. Here is how God has redeemed me. And it's corporate. It's something that we enter into the collective story together. One of the things that struck me this weekend was uh, Pastor David Laser talked about a Barna study that's out there that says that uh, 18, those that are age 18 to 29, 64% of them, whenever they graduate, they don't come back to the church. They leave. And it's heartbreaking. And I heard a collective sense from our students of, that's not going to be me. That's not going to be me. I am going to say yes to the Lord now so that that doesn't become me. But here's the thing, is that nobody else in all of, of culture is going to say that God is good except for you and me. We are the people that tell about God's goodness. And maybe, maybe that statistic would be different if we were known for telling about the goodness of God more. Perhaps we have room to create more than we complain. Perhaps we have room to inspire more than we indict. Perhaps we have room to be grateful for what God is doing instead of grumbling about what's going on. I propose to you that we need to speak up about the things that are right and wrong, but I think the message of Jesus will be far more heard if we do this, if we talk about the goodness of God more than we grumble and complain. What story are we telling? What future are we creating? Our story, friends, has to be bigger than what we see right now. It has to be bigger. And I'm so thankful, one, for this book, that my range of perspective is bigger than this moment. I'm thankful to be with a group of people that see beyond this moment, too. Amen? Okay, so starting in verse 4. Now, these next four sections, they are four pictures about people and something that they go through. It could be describing four groups of people, or it could simply be describing four different ways that God redeems his people from disastrous consequences. So verses four through nine, some wandered in a desert wasteland, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Now, first off, our stories, we have to start with what's true. We have to recognize where we are before we can go any further. We have to start with the reality. God deals in reality, by the way. We have to recognize the reality of where we are. There's a story about a plane in the 1960s that was on its way to Cuba, and hijackers took over the plane, but people didn't believe the hijackers because Alan Funt, 
the man who created Candid Camera, was on the plane. And so even though, right, the hijackers even were holding the stewardesses by knife point, and nobody believed them. It was so much, they, they were so duped that when the plane landed in Cuba, they applauded the pilots. They were so wrong, right? And we can be duped. We live in an era of lies, right? We live in an era of false information. And thankfully, all those people were okay, and it, it's good. But we need to start with the truth. And so there's, right from the get-go, there's an understanding of I am thirsty and I'm wandering in the desert. There's an honest assessment of where, where they're starting. Now, these are people that are lost, and they have no hope for a future. I don't know if you've ever been lost, like not lost in a city where there's people or in cell phone reception, but like lost in the woods where there's more bears than there is bars on your phone, right? Lost in an ocean where you can't see anybody. It's frightening. I'll never forget, it was actually right after the weekend we came visited here in July of 2009. Abby and I, we went up to Vermont to visit some friends, and I knew the directions to the house we were going, because I'm good with maps. Uh, but someone sent me directions, and they were wrong. And it was one of those dark, stormy nights, you couldn't see anything, and we are in the middle of nowhere, Vermont. And we're like 15, 20 minutes past when we should be there, and I knew something's wrong. We are lost, no cell phone reception, and so I finally found a house that had a light on. And so I pulled into the driveway, and I told Abby, I said, I'm going inside to get directions. I'll be back. And she said, I, you know, we're newlyweds. She was worried about me. I said, don't worry. I have my Leatherman. I'll be fine. <laughs> okay? So I went in, scared the people half to death, because they didn't expect anyone to come knocking on the door at 930 at night. But they helped me. They got me directions. But I came back, and Abby was so scared. Even though she knew, I told her, I'm coming back. And being lost can be like that. It is terrifying, right? When you're lost, that's the beginning of a horror movie. Being lost is absolutely terrifying. Now, here's the thing, is that God doesn't just rescue them. He also points them straight on the path to the city. And they're also hungry and thirsty. I don't know how loud their cry could have been when they're hungry and thirsty. It may have been a very weak, feeble cry, and yet that matters not to God. One cry, no matter how weak or how loud, God hears it and he rescues them. And he leads them on a straight path to the city, no more getting lost. They're home finally. This one is a story of God's redemption over isolation, confusion, and wandering in the wilderness over being lost. The second story, starting in verse 10, is some sat in darkness, in utter darkness. Prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled, and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. This is the story of the rebellious who end up as prisoners. This is the story of ancient Israel, who refused to be bound by God's law and God's loving kindness, and instead they were bound by their enemies. Now you and I, we can do this when we go off into sin and when we believe the lie that God is holding out on us, and that there's a better way if we just take life into our own hands. Romans 1 uses the language that God gave them over to their sinful desires. Sometimes when we choose to walk away from God, God allows us 
to, to drink all of that sinful way. And yet, God rescues them. God was longing for them. He was waiting for them. And this is a story of deliverance over the prison of sin and utter darkness. I wrote this in my notes, and uh, it's clearly obvious just from what's happened this morning. But this is what I, I wrote. If this is you today, know that there are many near you who have the same story. We've heard that abundantly. I was going to tell you to go to YouTube, but, and you can do that too. You can watch our testimonies online. But this is the story of so many of us, is that God rescued us from utter darkness. Aren't you glad to be in a place where people don't hide away those dark moments, but they share them so that you can find freedom too? Amen. Okay, so if that's you today, know that you don't have to stay as a, as a prisoner anymore. Here's the third one. Starting in verse 17, some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing loves and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. Now, these, these are fools. They, these are those that are sick from the result of their foolishness. Sometimes we can invite disaster into our lives, right? Like if I'm driving and typing an email on my laptop at the same time, I'm kind of inviting disaster, right? If I am eating too many um, carbs and sugars and not working, my, working out as much, I'm not inviting good things into my life, right? Do you understand what I mean? We can invite disaster by the choices that we make. And it, Sometimes the depravity can be so great, the darkness can become so great that people can't even see how good choice food is anymore. This is that they didn't even want to eat. We can be so given over to what we think we want that we don't even see the good things that God has for us anymore. This is the people that are so lost and hopeless that they've lost the will to go on. And yet with one plea, rescue comes. One commentary I read said that prayer is just as effective on a sickbed as it is in the wilderness or in a prison, and it may be tried in all places and circumstances with certain result. This is the story of those who feel too sick to go on, and yet God brings them so much abundance that they have food to give as a thank offering. They go from not wanting to eat to, to, being, to having food and then even offering some of it as a, as a free will offering to the Lord. Do you know that God can re rescue you from your foolish things? You don't have to get what you deserve. You can get grace instead of the things that you and I deserve. Isn't that a good thing? Amen. I hope you see this pattern emerging that I talked about in the beginning, by the way. Creation, that there was something good. There's a fall, there's brokenness. And there's a cry out to God, and he comes, and he rescues, and he redeems, and then he restores. Here's the fourth one. These are sailors. Is anybody a sailor? We're a little far from water. Does anybody want to be a sailor? Where's John? John's, John's working on his captain's license. Sailor John. Okay, Captain John. Some went out to the sea on ships, and they were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. He spoke, and he stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens, and they went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. 
Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of elders. These are sailors who are overwhelmed. They're tossed. They're confused by life. They don't they're overwhelmed by the circumstances in the life. Here's the thing about sailing is that you and I can think that we are in control of what happens, but when you're out on the water, you recognize that I'm not in control of what happens. I can do everything I can, but I cannot control the wind and the waves. I cannot control what life is about to throw at me. These are people where their emotions are up and down, and sometimes it, you you feel like you're tossed, you're overwhelmed, and like one more wave is coming, and oh my goodness, I don't know how I'm going to get through this wave. This is speaking to those souls that are in the deep, whose courage melts away at the size of the storm. And what is the result of the rescue? It's not just deliverance, it's also quiet. The wind is reduced to a whisper. And when your soul is tossed and turned, Jesus brings peace to the noise. And brings peace to your soul. And these also aren't just left in the storm, but they're also brought in to the safe haven that God has for them. Sometimes distress comes and it seems like it's God's judgment. God is doing something to you, sometimes it feels like. But I want to tell you that what happens is God's not trying to punish his children, but to wake us up if we're if our reality, if where we're going, does not have a good place that it's going, right? Like back to being in the water. If you're off course and you are moving 100 miles off course, it's not a good thing for you to be off course because you're going to be far away from your destination. And so sometimes God brings these circumstances to wake us up and say, get back on course. You're about to miss where you're supposed to be. All right. And now, verses, starting in verse 33, God turns rivers into a desert flowing springs into a thirsty ground and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who live here. He also turns the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into flowing springs. And there he brought the hungry to live and they founded a city where they could settle. They sowed fields and planted vineyards that yielded a fruitful harvest. He blessed them and their numbers greatly increased. He did not let their herds diminish. Then their numbers were decreased and they were humbled by oppression, calamity, and sorrow. He who pours contempt on nobles makes them wander in a trackless waste. But he lifted the needy out of their affliction and increased their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouths. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. Now these are such a great reversal of what we expect. There's, there's a, a scripture in the word, there's one verse in the scripture that is, you see it throughout, and it's this, it's that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. And so there are those, by the way, if there's going to be flowing water in the desert, it's either because there's a, an oasis that God created, or people have gone through a lot of work to bring irrigation here. And if they did that, they were usually very proud of their accomplishments. And this is a way of saying God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is the great reversal. Now, speaking of local places, 
places can apply to the soil of our own lives. Are we inviting Jesus to make rivers in the dry areas within us? Or are we coasting along just believing that all is well while the springs of our life get emptied without us noticing or asking for an infilling from the Lord? Yet in all this, there's a call to God's love. Six times it says about how, uh, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. One of the beautiful things about this psalm is that it's very realistic. It is not a promise of perpetual blessing, but it's a, a psalm about how there are, there's change, there's chaos sometimes in life, and yet we can find rescue and deliverance if we turn to the Lord. Here's what I want to end this with, is, is that you, we need to guard our story. Guard our story. Verse 43 says, Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. Now, we talked about how stories have to be true. Think of the names of the enemy of your soul, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies. The enemy would love to sow lies into your and my life. Did God really say that? Did God really put you with this person? Did God really put you in this place? God's holding out on you. You know that friend of yours, you actually can't trust them. That person that you've been trusting, you can't trust them anymore. Our enemy is the, the father of lies. And what we need to do is we need to hold these situations up to the truth of the light and allow the Holy Spirit of truth to show us what's true and what's not. And I just want to say this too, is that we, I want to encourage all of us, we all do this, is to believe the best in other people. And we don't see this, we see this so clearly when we're driving, right? If we cut somebody off, we're like, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And then if someone cuts us off, we're like, that person is an idiot. They don't even deserve to have a license, right? We believe the worst about other people in driving, and we expect them to believe the best about us. And I think it's the same in life as believe the best in other people. Don't be looking for things to, don't, don't be assuming the worst. Believe the best. And I would also say this, every story and culture has a villain. I'm sorry, I'm going to quote John Eldridge in his book, Epic. He says, every story in culture has a villain because yours does. Though most of you do not live like it. Most people do not live as though the story has a villain, and that makes life very confusing. And so we have a villain, an enemy, and pretty clearly we've heard already today that he's conquered and he's defeated, and he has no more power in our life. Amen? Okay. Um, there's competing stories, and we need to listen to the right one. And a couple of things with this is that we need to know what story we're in. For example, if you take Jacob, the manipulator, the heel grabber, and you drop him into Joseph's story, I don't think it's going to end very well, right? The manipulator would probably try to make a deal with the slave traders, and they probably would have been done with him and just cut off his head. Or, you know, when he meets Potiphar's wife and she tries to seduce him, I don't know what the heel grabber would have done. He might have given in to her, and then he's done there too. We need to recognize what story we're in and not try to be in someone else's story. And we also need to recognize what chapter we're in of our story. If you take Jacob in Genesis chapter 37, right after he shares the dream about what God's going to do, and you're all going to bow down to me, and you drop him into the moment of Genesis 45 when that happens, he's going to be proud and arrogant and think, look at me. But instead, in Genesis 45, he's broken and realizing that what God did, even though they meant it for evil, God meant it for their redemption and their rescue. And so we need to know our story, and we need to know what chapter we're in. Okay, now this last word, let the one who is wise heed these things. That word heed, it's the same word of keep or guard, like guard with a hedge, create a hedge. This is what God spoke to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, tend to the garden. 
Create it, cultivate it, grow it. This is not a passive, I'm just gonna let it go. Uh, I've, I've had trees in my yard that were way overgrown. Paul and Vernon had to come over and Paul had to hook up his truck and pull it out. It was a mess, okay? If we don't guard things, that's what happens. We need to cultivate it. It's the same word Abraham, uh, God used it with Abraham, keep my commands. We can't live on autopilot with this. We have to pay attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. Take time to sit in your story and say, God, what are you doing? Purposefully invite Jesus in and say, Jesus, show me what you're doing. Invite trusted friends into your story. Jesus, use these friends to help me understand what you're doing. Nobody else will tend to your story for you. It's yours to tend to. That'd be weird if someone else tended to your story, right? Nobody should know your prophetic words more than you. Nobody should know the story of what God's done in your life more than you. Rehearse those things. Tell the story. Your life is not a collection of random events, but a carefully constructed story inside of a larger story of God, of a good God and a lesser, weaker, evil accuser. And it's essential that we understand our story. A.W. Tozer wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us the most important thing about us. What is it that you believe about God? Do you believe that God is generous or that he's stingy, he's close-fisted? Do you believe that God is gracious or that he's impossible to please? Do you believe that he is distant or that he's close? Do you believe that he's trustworthy, that he's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness? The stories we believe about God impact our behavior and they change our life. And here's what I want to say to you. God has good things for you. Here's some of the things that we see just in this, in this chapter. God led them in a straight way in a city where they could settle. He satisfies and fills the hungry with good things. God brings people out of darkness, utter darkness, and breaks away their chains. God sent out his word and healed them, and he rescued them from the grave. God brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and he guided them to the desired haven. May your belief in God's story overwhelm the times you've been lied to, trapped in rebellion or sin, or fallen asleep as the character in your story. Here's my final encouragement to you, is partner with Jesus to discern and guard your story. When you do, you can enjoy the life that God has for you with all of its unexpected twists and turns, confusing chapters, even the moments where we can't see the perspective of the author the thing that he's setting up outside of your field of view. His ultimate goal is life and the freest, most truest life for you. Guard your story. I'm just going to read Psalm 107, 2 and 3 again. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hands of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from the east and west, from north and south. And did you notice this morning the power of story? Even in the beginning of baptism, of Dale getting up and sharing his story, and of, and of David getting up and sharing his story, that story of God's redemption inspires others. When we tell the story of God's goodness that goes beyond others and it motivates them to trust in Jesus, in the good author. And I want to encourage you, if something that, that you saw or experienced or heard today prompts you, seek somebody out to talk to, to pray with, have, ask them to have lunch or, or a cup of coffee because these things that we share, we don't have enough time to share them on a Sunday morning. We, we need time outside of this moment to share our stories and invite others into that. And so if, if you felt that way, um, invite someone in. And also, 
It's a treasure when someone invites you into their story. Guard it, protect it. Don't share it with other people. Honor them. I've got something that I want to pronounce uh, over you all, and we'll see if the Lord has anything else to do this morning. But would you stand? I want to speak this over each of our lives. I want to speak a blessing over us. God is the creator of life and the author of our stories, and may you see what the author is setting up in your story. May you reject the voice of the father of lies. May you cry out in repentance when you've been rebellious or foolish. May you cry out for help when you're lost, confused, or tossed by life. May you not lose hope in the goodness of the author of your story. May you partner with the author to see his story in you completed. And may the anointing of God be upon you to be his storytellers, just as it was upon the prophets, the priests, and the kings of old. And may you be a living epistle of the story of God's redemption. Amen.